All right, welcome everybody. It is Eli and Dave with Fintrepreneur. We're really excited this week to have Brian Beck from Master B2B, lead voice in the B2B e-commerce space. I've uh, attended multiple e-commerce conferences. I've read the book, The Billion Dollar B2B e-commerce. And so really excited to have you on. It's very relevant to what we're doing. So thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Brian, we always kick off the podcast with a little get to know you session. So why don't we just talk a little bit about how you got into B2B e-commerce sure. and what you're doing today? So guys, uh, you know, I joke that B2B e-commerce makes me feel young, right? Because I've been in the field of e-commerce for almost uh, 25 years and B2B is so far behind B2C, right? And I spent the first two decades almost of my career in B2C e-commerce. So I ran e-commerce for companies like Harbor Freight Tools, which is a multi-billion dollar retailer, mainly US focused, close to a thousand stores. PacSun, a few other you know retail and consumer brands, and we dealt with a lot of the issues that B two B are now really grappling with and starting to adopt as best practices for e commerce. I got into B two B about six years ago. I took on the the task foolishly of writing a book, which <laughs> took four years. Came out right before the pandemic, and it's been uh, that's called billion dollar B two B e commerce, and that's been quite a journey, right? In working with a lot of these bigger mid-market and big B2B companies and helping them to evolve their their digital capabilities. I founded a, a thought leadership series called uh, Master B2B. I founded that with the former head of e B2B e-commerce at Forrester Research. His name is Andy Hoare. And today we have, you know, we, we do events, we have thought leadership, we produce, uh, we're starting to produce some research, all associated to how do B2B companies really, you know, really uh, embrace what their customers are demanding from them and create competitive advantage from e-commerce. So excited to talk to you guys today. You know, the whole FinTech side of this is a big area of evolution for these companies. So Brian, why is B2B so far behind? And what are the key differences in doing B2B e-commerce versus B2C in your prior life? Yeah, great question, Dave. So why is it so far behind? I'll take them one at a time, right? So the fact of the matter is for many years, B2B e-commerce, whether you're a distributor or a manufacturer, the results have been just good enough, right? They've been good enough that the pressure hasn't been there to accelerate some of the investments that the, the demand, the buyers in B2B really have come to expect. So it's really been a leadership and funding and prioritization issue for many years in B2B. You know, first getting into B2B, I would always hear, hey, it's, you know, my customer doesn't want e-commerce. This is a relationship-based business. I've always done things, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. I know my customer and it requires physical interaction to do business with them. That element hasn't necessarily changed, but what's happened is the buyer has changed and the buyer now demands more digital interaction to inform some of those physical, you know, interactions. And some of the transactions that have traditionally happened in physical channels and some of the research and other things have migrated to, to digital channels. And the companies that aren't supplying that, and we saw this in particular through the pandemic, the companies are not ready for, you know, the digital, haven't been ready for the digital side of the research, the buying process, the support process, et cetera, have fallen behind. You know, through the pandemic, we saw many, many companies or buyers buying from suppliers that never bought from before. And it's because the traditional suppliers weren't ready for e-commerce. So number one, it's been about leadership. It's been about prioritization and budgets. And that being the reason, it's not that the best practices don't exist. It's not the technologies don't exist to help B2B companies evolve. It's really about that. The second part of your question, Dave, 
was around the elements of difference, right? So what's different about B2C e-commerce? And the simplest way to think about that, uh, and the way I write about it in my book, B2C, on the B2C side, you know, customers are shopping for connection. They're consumers. It's an adventure. They're looking for a bit of fun and connection to a lifestyle. You know, take, I used to be in the fashion e-commerce business, right? At PacSun, we were selling apparel. And, you know, connecting with a customer is different there than in a B2B scenario where the customer has a job to do. Your B2B customer has to get in and get out, right? So it's a very directed shopping experience. And so there's elements of the B2C experience that they need to see. So the commonality is, right, they want to be able to find a product quickly. The search has to be excellent. See the a great product image of it. Look at the product page. Get into a checkout process. Pay the way they want to pay, right? This is your guys' world, right? Pay they want the way they want to pay, which, by the way, is also on PO. It's on credit terms. It could be credit card. It's not forcing them into something they don't, method they don't want to use to pay. And then get out quickly and then get access support after the sale, right? So a lot of the common elements of the B2C experience that we've come to expect as consumers now apply to B2B. And with 75% of B2B buyers now millennials, those born between 1980 and 2000, they are digital natives and they expect that experience from you as a B2B company. So there's a lot of commonalities, but there's also some differences that I can get into in more detail if you want to dive into that. One of them is on that topic was the example that you gave in the book about how some Amazon or companies like that will give you, you know, frequently bought with or right. um, just reorder, like a quick reorder or something, you know, talking about the attention span of a B2B buyer is that they're not there, you know, cruising around the website, trying to look for things that interest them. They're there for a purpose. So making right. sure that whatever you think they can be interested in is really obvious for them. I like that example. I don't know if there's other examples like that that you can talk about. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, so I, one of the key thesis in the book is the way to, and what I found in interviewing and working with now dozens, if not hundreds of B2B companies, is that making the buyer's job easier across the board, and you just gave a good example, that's the key to success in B2B. Now, you can say that to some extent of B2C, but really in B2B, if you're eliminating friction it can drive value everywhere. So you talked about the process of making product recommendations. Many large distributors, for example, may have hundreds of thousands or even millions of products they're offering on their website or just offering in general. Getting that product surfaced at the right time using great search and personalization tools is something that can go beyond even what a salesperson might be able to do because there's just so much data, there's so much product. So easing the friction, getting the customer what they want quickly is one really critical you know, sort of element of easing that friction. But it applies to other things too. You think about shipping, you know, communication of shipping and shipping options, right? So oftentimes in B2B, a customer might need something shipped to a job site, or they may need to pick it up at a branch location in if you're a distributor. So the, the B2C concept of BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, is similar in B2B, buy online, pick up in branch, BOPIB, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you got that element. And of course, in your world, payments, right? The customer looking to pay by the method they're accustomed to payment on terms, paying with a credit card, paying whatever they're, you know, kind of accustomed to paying. And this also applies to even how they're buying. So in B2B, a big difference might be, you know, that that there's an influencer in the sale and then there's a purchaser and they're different people. So the influencer in a B2B company 
might be a researcher, or might be someone using the product in the field, but there's a procurement department. So we have to pass the you know efficient B2B workflows. You're passing that that order, that request from that that influencer, that person that needs the product to the purchasing department for approvals. There might be multiple steps they have to go through. You can ease that entire process using these digital tools in B2B and make the buyer's job easier. So if you think about the customer journey and all the way through it, where you guys play, where everybody else plays here, if we can get that process to be more efficient, we drive huge return on investment from this. And you know, the industries are still just waking up to this. Distributors are getting it more than manufacturers are. But you know, it's there's still a lot of companies that don't have e-commerce, particularly on the manufacturing side. These are huge opportunities. I think that's a good segue into the differences between B2B and B2C. You mentioned one being that the individual who has a need for the product might be different than the procurement manager who approves it and actually places the order. And so I, I suppose your e-commerce platform needs to somehow make that easy for your buyer. Is that one of the, the key differences? And what are some others that... that yeah, happen? that's a key difference. A couple of other key differences. One is that the... Well, there's quite a few, but... One is that, you know, if you think about in my B2C days, we might have a database of three or four or five million customers, right? In B2B, a business that's twice the size of that business I just described in B2C might have 8,000 customers or 20,000 customers. But the difference is that, so it's a much more closed loop and you have an opportunity to learn more about those customers because it is a traditionally often relationship-based business. The thing is those eight or 10,000 customers might have different price lists, right? They may all be on different contracts. So you may have millions or billions of price iterations. If you have a catalog that is 100,000 products or a million products, and you have 10,000 different iterations of all those prices, everyone's on their own contract. Think about the technical complexity of this. That doesn't exist in B2C. In addition to the pricing discrepancies or differences or unique pricing, you might have unique catalogs. So every one of my customers or some of my maybe key accounts want to be, we were going to log into that, that B2B seller's website. I'm going to see different products based on what's on my procurement list or what's on my supply list. This stuff doesn't exist in, in B2C, right? So you've got these workflows that are different as you described them, Dave, right? Which is the buying workflow for many businesses. You've got different pricing, you've got different catalogs. And sometimes there's also very complex configurations that occur in B2B. So there's, you know, you're building, let's say, uh, we've done a lot of work with a company called Big Ass Fans. You guys know who they are. They make yeah. fans, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I you've been in an airport and you've seen these 25-foot wingspan fans, they're probably Big Ass Fans. So Big Ass Fans has very complex, you know, as you're building a product, and this is similar to like vehicular and other chemicals, a whole variety of these. As you're, you're building a product, at the end of that, you may get a quote. And that quote right. that may be followed up by a physical salesperson, right? It may go into us. So there's these highly complex product configurations. You know, you're putting the, the blades on the fan and you're determining the right power settings and what do you need to move for airflow? I mean, there's a lot of complexity in a lot of these B2B products. That's another big difference from most B2C categories. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah, it's a bit more complicated. You know, in part in my ignorance here, but on the workflow question of individual wants a product, the one I'm approving and buying is a different person. How do you actually deal with that? Like what, how does the platform, are both of those individuals logging in? One is registering that they want it. And then later yeah. on that same platform will ping the procurement guy to approve it or how does that work? Pretty much. So the platforms that are 
designed for in B2B, they'll have within them workflow, you know, kind of rules, work rules, et cetera, that will that are different than what you'd find in B2C. It's typically handled through a dashboard. The procurement team will have their dashboard and they have roles. So you, you can set up roles within these systems. And a procurement role is a common one, right? And there may be, so there'll be notifications, there'll be a, a approval workflow before an order can be released and, and charged. And, there, you know, systems these days, and now today there's quite a few of them, the, the e-com platforms. You know, if you go back five or 10 years, we're nearly as many platforms as there are today that do this stuff. But there'll be these workflows now that exist, you know, they, they require configuration. But in many platforms today, because of the commonality of this type of a work, of a buying workflow, that will exist out of the box and just needs configuration. So yes, it is handled by the e-commerce platform typically. Mm-hmm. So on the topic of B2B, B2C, we often segregate those as if they're completely too different. Like there's companies that are only B2C and companies that are only B2B and there's no overlap, which is a misconception, right? We've got companies like, I believe one that you mentioned in the book and one that is actually our client as well, Lenovo, doing it, you know, they have a huge B2C presence, but also have a B2B, sure. right? And they've been able to, cross those two, you know, websites and two offerings together as one, basically. And so I'm wondering, is there, you know, because we've talked to a lot of companies that say, I do wholesale, I do B2B sales, but I do that one manually. That's off to the side. You have to call me and I got to do an ordering, you know, an invoice there. But for B2C, they've got the entire experience online. And that just kills me inside every time I hear that. So (laughs) what are your thoughts on that? Is there programs that are out there to help B2C companies that want to do more B2B online? Do you have any suggestions? For sure. That's a great question, Eli. And, you know, yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of, there is a convergence happening, right? With, if think about the customer experience demands, right? Because the B2B buyer is the same as the B2C buyer in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then companies that have multiple opportunities to sell. So you have B2C companies, take, C, you know, CPG firms, things like that, or even retailers that have an opportunity to move into B2B e-commerce. Likewise, you have companies that are traditionally been in B2B that want to sell direct to consumer. You know, think about some of the big traditional B2B manufacturers that maybe they want to sell their products to small businesses that look like consumers or maybe consumers directly. So this convergence, which is occurring, which is really exciting, there are platforms that will support both methods of selling, right? And so the value to that, the benefit to the company that's selling, the manufacturer, distributor, retailer, whoever, is that you're not duplicating, right? So the, again, this the same. There's a set of common functionalities that are important to both the B2B and B2C buyer, as it relates to things like checkout, search, navigation of products, etc. Right, the way you present products and product information. So as a company, you don't necessarily want to be maintaining separate systems for your e-commerce B2B B2C. A lot of companies do that because of the way they've evolved. But, you know, ultimately there's this convergence occurring where, you know, you, you centralize some of that commerce capability across both. And if you're able to, there are systems that exist that can accommodate both, right? I think about, you know, companies like Adobe or big commerce, even Shopify has gotten into it recently. Some of the, you know, the commerce tools, you know, SAP at the, you know, the enterprise, a lot of these companies have now multiple capabilities to support both business models, right? So they will be mm-hmm. There's enough there for the consumer, they'll power the consumer, but then they have all this other differences, the workflows, the permissions, the roles, the custom pricing, catalogs, et cetera, that will enable the B2B side. So if you have an opportunity in both, I'm seeing companies you know, really look to employ a single system 
because there's so much duplication if you're managing those in different places, particularly with regard to things like product data, right? And content, you know, maintaining that in different places. So there's different approaches to that, but the vendor community, the solution providers are seeing that as well. And, and a number of them are focusing on those, providing those capabilities to, to the market so that sellers can effectively implement both channels. You mentioned the name of a few platforms uh, just now, Big Congress, SAP, and a few others. Just diving into that a little bit more, I'm sure you've had experience working with a number of these, mm -hmm. uh, given how many different businesses you've been involved with. What have you seen that has worked well? What are some pet peeves? You know, which would you you know recommend for different types of situations? Yeah, I've been an operator on many platforms over my career, and then also I've helped companies in the past do you know selections of platforms, and obviously work a lot with platforms. A lot of them are involved with our master B two B you know a series, thought leadership series. So what I've found over the years is that. Really, the platform choice is highly dependent on the situation of the company, right? So I always encourage companies when they're first thinking about a platform. I mean, you can look at Andy's Combine, you can look at Gardner, you can look at Forrester. They're going to give you kind of the generic, hey, here's who's doing well, here's who's winning share, here's what some of their strengths are. And Andy's goes a little deeper than Forrester and Gardner. But at the end of the day, what's really important when you start this process as a B2B company is similar things to what we did in consumer, which is really understanding what are you trying to achieve? What customer experience are you trying to deliver? What is your customer looking for from you? What channels are important to you? There's platforms, for example, that are really great at individual industries that have, I can think of like a Gen Alpha, right? Which you probably never heard of, but what do they do? They focus on vehicular e-commerce, right? No, I mean vehicular e-commerce. E-commerce for equipment manufacturers who make vehicles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're marvelous at this because they focus in one specific area. They have deep, you know, product specs. You can go and you can look at all the different angles of the. They integrate to the CAD system, so you can look at the vehicle and you can spin it around and find all the parts you need and, and order them through e-commerce. And they've customized the whole workflow. But you know, that's a specific use case. You know, you look at that com at some of the headless commerce vendors. You look at you know what's called composable commerce, commerce tools, Spryker, Vtex, there's uh, nautical commerce. There's a bunch of others. Those folks have really shine when you start looking at you know particularly highly complex multiple ERP setups where you have a lot of different legacy systems and you want to migrate that and have flexibility to bring new experiences to market for equipment manufacturers integrating Internet of Things using composable commerce. It's a good fit there. In other cases, it may not be as good a fit. If you're a, a smaller mid-market company, you need everything out of the box. You need something that's more contained. Maybe you should look at Shopify. I mean, Shopify has a, has a few B2B features or big commerce. Big commerce is moving up market. So my point is simply, it's hard to say, hey, if you gave me a use case, I could give you more examples. But, but <laughs> yeah. in terms of like, hey, here's the B2B is very diverse, right? So it's easier in B2C in some ways because... You know, there's a lot of commonality in the use case across retailers, for example. But in B2B, yeah. you've got so many different use cases and different workflows and different go-to-markets, and it really depends on what the company is focused on. So, sorry, I can't really answer your question. No, no, that was that was like a you delivered a ton of value with that answer, actually. And and I would so clearly there's more complexity in B2B. There's more tailoring happening to use cases. You know, likely that means that even over the long run. B2B e-commerce is going to be a more fragmented space from a platform perspective than B2C. Like you're not going to have 
a Shopify that just absolutely, you know, dominates the B2B space? Probably not. It's too many different niches. I would agree with that. I think there is some, to your point though, there is some in individual industries, there's opportunities for platforms to be a Shopify for that industry. And I'll use the example of uh, like for an, an electrical, for example, for many years, there's a platform called Unilog. You may never have heard of it. Unilog has a bunch of electrical distributors and it's because they focused on that category for years. Yeah. And so there's opportunities like that for platforms in B2B. And so for a payment solution like Tabit or Credit Key, that means more integrations with more different platforms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. But, you know, one of the things that you want to look for in you know, your world, too, is where's the use case best in B2B for your solution? And, you know, of course, credit's been used everywhere as a differentiator, particularly for distributors for many, many years. Right. So if I'm a contractor buying from an HVAC distributor or an electrical distributor, you know, I'm expecting credit terms and distributors have used that for years as a competitive advantage. Right. I give you more credit. Buy from me. Where do I go to buy a contractor with? maybe a limited credit score, where do I go to buy? Well, you know, I'm going to go to the folks who have the credit available to me, right? And that is still a differentiator for distributors. Yeah, that's an important point on the financing side is, you know, as a company that is in the finance or fintech or factoring, whatever you want to call it, space, there are so many different segments, right? If there's a seller who's selling to mostly large enterprise or to larger companies and they're already offering these net terms for $500,000 credit limits, a million plus, so on and so forth. Maybe that's not the fit. It could be a fit for a different company that's looking for those specific net terms. Whereas on the complete other side of the spectrum, there are companies like ours who are specialized in that small, small segment of borrower where a supplier may not have either the expertise, the in-house capability, or frankly, the patience (laughs) to underwrite small business on an ongoing basis, right? And so... It's a great point that you mentioned that we need to understand as much as possible who the right seller is and not try to serve everybody in the B2B space, right? Yeah, well, I also say, I mean, I'll, I'll even go a step further and say that the traditional credit process in B2B is not efficient. It's broken. In other words, if you are a B2B buyer and you're going on to someone's website to, to set up a, you know, an account... The process does not is not efficient in most cases, right? They're coming in, they have to fill out a form, print it, fill out a form, fax it in or scan it and send it back, wait a week or two, and then they maybe they get a credit account, right? So this is where opportunity lies for companies like you, Credit Key and others, is, is to get in there and, and make that process efficient. Remember, it's about eliminating friction in the buyer's journey, which starts from the very beginning of the buyer's journey all the way through to the end. You guys play one important part of that. And it's about eliminating friction and payments is a huge place where there's friction, right? And it's all the way from the account creation, uh, credit terms creation process, all the way through to how do you use that and use it in checkout, both online and offline. Frankly, there's a big opportunity offline to integrate these same processes in, you know, sitting in the room with the customer, taking you know, their information right there on a mobile device and getting credit approved instantly, for example, while the salesperson's in the room with the customer. So there's online and offline applications of this, but it's always about making the buyer's job easier. That's how you're going to succeed in B2B e-commerce. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the sales thing came up a lot. And one of the first conferences I attended about B2B e-commerce that I hadn't considered it being a challenge, but the friction between the development of a B2B 
e-commerce platform and the existing sales team of a company. There's a lot of friction in between that and a lot of resistance from the sales uh, side, you know, saying things like, no, this is a relationship based or either being concerned about whether or not this is going to affect their commissions and so on. And the ones that have done it right are the ones that were able to converge the two together, right? To make it more efficient. So I know you know a lot about this topic. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, I do. This is close to my heart and talk to people every day about it. So my partner at Andy, uh, Andy Hort, Master B2B, he wrote a piece about this when he was at Forrester called The Death of a B2B Salesperson, right? Is <laughs> Does e-commerce spell the death of a B2B salesperson? Well, the answer is no, if the sales team, the salespeople are actually adding value. <laughs> so right. let's be honest here, folks, right? As a sales uh, team, you're only taking orders and those and the customer knows exactly what they want. And it's a product they order all the time. Your value is limited. You're not actually adding value to that customer. And what e-commerce does is it up levels the expectation or the bar for the sales team. But the sales team, the people who are truly good at their job are not order takers. They're strategic salespeople. They're talking to their accounts. They want to use e-commerce to take that repeat sale and get it off their plate because it's a waste of their time. And if they get credit and commission for that sale that's happening through e-commerce, that's awesome. But there is an existential threat they feel many when they're not yet in this e-commerce game. I'm talking about the sales team at a B2B company, that this is going to destroy their relationships. All of my ordering and my relationship and everything else is going to go to the e-com site. And it's a visceral reaction. And I can understand why they feel that way, right? I mean, they think about Amazon. Everything's going to be, you know, Amazon. This is all going to, my everything's going to go away. I'm never going to talk to my customers again. It's BS. It doesn't happen. If you're adding value as a salesperson, you're able to then use your skills more effectively. You have more time to do it. You can reach more customers. The most effective salespeople, and even if you're not the most effective, if you're reasonably good at what you do, you're going to earn more commission. You're going to make more money. Your company's going to make more money. Your sales targets may even go up, but that's okay because you can hit them because you're using e-commerce. And e-commerce, the digital side, is informing how good you can be at your job. You know, you can see when your named customer, when they go online, log in and add something to their cart or download something or look at what they're interested in because you can see their site visits, right? And I'm integrated now. My e-commerce is integrated to my CRM system. And my CRM, my Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever the company's using for a CRM tells me that that customer is interested in these things. That's incredibly powerful data, right? For a salesperson before I walk in. So you, you talk about when the sales team aligns and when they're together, it's really powerful, but the sales team has to be aligned early and often, and there needs to be a deliberate plan for alignment or it won't work. One of the number one reasons e-com doesn't work is the sales team is not on board. Yeah, this is kind of topical. A lot of conversation as of late with uh, chat GPT and stuff around just technology replacing humans in general. And I would say that the most you know, intelligent business leaders that I respect and follow are coalescing around the same point that you just made, which is that you know, human plus technology equals, you know, the most powerful and successful outcome, right? So it's about working together with the tech to elevate what you can do. Mm -hmm. Let's zoom out a bit and talk time scale here. You mentioned B2B obviously being quite far behind B2C. You know, talk about the big stages of evolution you saw in B2C and then where are we at with B2B in that evolution? And what does that imply for where we have to go still? Yeah, it's interesting. We're doing actually a study this year at Master B2B where we're going to be talking about 
where are we in exactly that? What's the state of B2B e-commerce? Where are we in terms of maturity as a business? So we'll actually have some stuff that's well-researched in a few months. So that'll be something that your uh, your folks should watch out for. We'll be publishing that. But, you know, kind of where we are today, right? It's it's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of care. I, so in my book, I have sort of the five stages of digital transformation. And your first stage is basically you're doing nothing and you're losing ground, right? I kind of tie kind of where we are and, and where your value is, you know, how much value you can capture or are losing at each one of these stages. So where, you know, one is, is that, right? It's, it's basically not doing anything. Two is basically you have a, you know, you have a, you have a site, you have a content site, maybe you're passing, you know, some of your interested traffic to a reseller or you're tra- passing, you know, to someone else or Amazon or someone else who's fulfilling the order for you, taking and fulfilling the order. Stage three is you're, you know, kind of right in the middle, which is e-commerce, right? You're doing some e-commerce. You may not have it fully, you know, fully baked, but you're, you know, you've got an e-com site out there. It's taking some orders. You're getting some penetration, you know, 5% of your total sales might be through e-commerce. The stage after that is you're starting to align channels, right? So this that's the stage we've been talking about. And this is where we start getting into a, a more mature company, right? Someone who is actually at at a stage where they are embracing digital. There's some knowledge and investment. It's not a silo. It's across the company. People are thinking about it. The CEO is talking about it. And the sales team is aligned with it, right? The last stage is really a truly digitally transformed company. And when we talk about that, that's a company that's getting a significant, usually percentage of their revenue through digital channels, not all e-commerce. That could be punch out, e-procurement, other channels as well. But And I use like an MSC industrial as a good case of this. 65, they're a multi-billion dollar company getting 65% of their revenue from digital channels or influenced heavily by digital channels. A lot of that's e-commerce. At this fully mature stage, your C-suite is, has three or four digital people in it, meaning they've come up through e-commerce, digital channels. Sales team is leveraging digital in many ways. You're attributing revenue, not just in silos, but you're seeing the influence that digital has across all of your channels, right? You're saying, hey, I know that these customers research stuff online through my website or through other sources, but they're buying in my ER through my EDI or through my sales team. The sales team has fully embraced e-commerce. So where are we as an industry in that spectrum? I'll take two cuts at it. Manufacturers are at about 2.5 on average, right? So some of them have e-com, 50% don't. A lot of them are just have content sites and they're passing leads. If you talk about distributors, they're three to four, depending on which swath. The big ones tend to be a little bit above three. A lot of the mid-market is kind of touching on three, right? They may just be introducing e-com or they have some nascent e-com that's not great, but it's being developed. So we're still kind of in the middle of the curve. I mean, you can kind of count on one hand, well, maybe a couple hands, but the companies that are truly in stage five, stage four, you know, Granger, MSC, and some others like that, that are, you know, the, the big distributors that have invested for years in e-commerce, they're up in that those levels. Amazon, certainly. Yeah. I wonder, you know, not to be a Debbie Downer on our, our native country here, but if in Canada, you got to, you know, we're even earlier on that 5.5 or a whole point. So Brian, thank you, first of all, again, for joining us on this topic. It's a bit of a switch up from what we normally do. You know, we're normally always talking fintech and other sort of financial services, but this is such a relevant conversation for what we're doing. B2B e-commerce, at least in my eyes, is one of the most exciting things, opportunities for people because of the stage it's at and where it could be. And so, you know, everything that you shared today has been very valuable. And I hope people 
listen to this and actually take this seriously because you know you mentioned Sears in your book as one of the companies that weren't so serious about seeing what was happening in the e-commerce space and other ways and they didn't want to adapt and you know here they are today so anyway all that being said if we were to look 10 years from now this is a question we always ask and for you it'll be specific on the b2b e-commerce what do you hope to have seen happen in this space what would make you happy that has happened or what do you hope that will happen well, I mean, I think a couple of things, you know, looking 10 years out, it's going to be really interesting to see how a couple dynamics that we see today, you know, finally play out. I think what we're going to see, number one, we're going to see a lot more manufacturers selling direct to end buyers, B2B buyers, which is going to put a lot of pressure on the traditional distributors. Distributors are going to need to step up their game. They're going to need to find other ways to differentiate other than just product breadth and selection. I think we're going to see a lot fewer unfortunately, a lot fewer mid-market distributors who don't have necessarily the means or quite frankly, haven't invested the way they could and should have over the last 10 years, right? And so they're leaving customers open for other channels to go acquire. So I think we're going to see, number one, we're going to see more manufacturers taking more control. So 10 years from now, every manufacturer is going to have e-commerce in B2B. They're all going to be selling direct to the end buyer. All maybe is an overstatement. A large majority of them will, whereas today not many do. We're going to see an evolution of the business model for distribution, where they're truly differentiating based on things like services, based on things like making their own products and really delivering a digital experience, which expresses their expertise in specific industry categories. You know, if you're in automotive or aerospace or chemicals or industrial products, any of these categories have bespoke experiences that the buyer needs. And so by driving efficiency and getting that, that buyer what they need quickly and providing it across manufactured products, right? So they're going to have, they're going to be solution providers, not just transactional vehicles. It's not enough today for, comp for these big distributors, all distributors, just to provide broad assortment and price and delivery. It's not. So the other big factor we're going to see is we're going to see a lot more over the next 10 years evolution of an emergence of vertical marketplaces. So Amazon Business being the largest example of this, it's taking share every day in the market for specific use cases. Fact is that the distribution market, traditional distribution has left the door open for vertical marketplaces. These are you know companies that really create an Amazon-like experience for specific verticals and left the door open for them to take share because they're doing a better job of accommodating the buyer's needs. Now look at you know Amazon Business being an example. There's others in the market, infra.market for building materials. You got this company called Fair that's doing $200 million in home products, supplying retailers. This is a B2B transaction, several hundred million yeah. dollars. Guess who's losing the share? It's the middle people. It's the traditional middle people. It's the distributors. It's the, it's the agents. It's the independent reps. It's people who have traditionally been in. So, I think we're going to see those three elements really come to maturity over the next 10 years. Manufacturers being closer to their end buyer, for sure. And these marketplaces continuing to grow. So there's some predictions. Hold me to them. <laughs> I feel like we can we can have a full other podcast on that topic of marketplaces and, and sure. the transition to manufacturers more direct. You mentioned something about people being willing to pay up to 20% more to buy directly yeah. from the manufacturer, which is mind boggling. Yep. you know when you think about it in the b2b space so anyway we'll leave that to another time but uh yeah that was great thanks everyone for listening this was Fintrepreneur. until next time